This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for December 11th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 and 19 through 28, the third Sunday in Advent. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Well, today's the third Sunday of Advent, and if you notice, the candle is not purple, it's rose, not pink, <laughs> but rose. And um, it's that color in, in the significance of the fact that of, of the collect for the day. The collect for the day has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit, has a lot to do with the Annunciation of Mary um, when the Spirit, uh, when the angel appeared to her. Um, but if you noticed in the collect today, we started off saying, stir up, O Lord, your people. And so as a result, this Sunday has always had the nickname Stir Up Sunday. So that's a great trivia question. You all can go out and say, do you know what today is? And they'll go, what? And it's Stir Up Sunday. And they'll go, what's that supposed to be about? So, but it's Stir Up Sunday. And uh, it really has to do with this quickening of our spirits in preparation for the coming of Christ. Um, and in doing that, we have to go back to look at what the theme for Advent is really all about. The word Adventus, of course, means coming. Uh, but the theme is really about vigilance, you know, um, expectation, you know, to watch and wait, to really anticipate the presence of the Almighty God in the midst of our lives. And we talked about how there are really three ways in which we are always called to do that. The first we talked about was how we need to look for how God has worked in history. And we see that through Scripture, uh, through the traditions of the church. We see it through our own history and the ways that we've seen God work in our past. And we need to keep those in mind and remember them. And, and you'll see why in a little bit when we get to the sermon part, because that kind of harkens back to how you know that. The, the second way was that we need to look for Jesus's presence in our own lives today, every day. We need to expect him to be with us and to be involved in what it is that we are doing. And, and there are lots of ways that that happens, and, and I'll get back to that in just a second. The third way, of course, was to look for the coming of Christ at the end of time, um, when he shall come to judge the living and the dead, the end of the world as we know it, which is really the end of sin and death and sorrow and crying, and the inauguration of creation, which has now been completed and is exactly the way that God wants it to be. And those are sort of the themes, though, that Paul is talking about today in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now, he says something interesting in there. If you remember last week, if you were here, I talked about uh, the Orthodox bishop who would always be praying, and he'd be going up and down his prayer rope, constantly saying prayers on it. Um, and it comes from this passage. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing, he says. Now, if we all had to get together to do that for corporate prayer, that could be hard, wouldn't it? Um, plus, we get tired of each other. It's not that kind of prayer. And even if you just had to say prayers out loud, that would be hard to do without ceasing. And even, honestly, if you had to be you know, thinking prayers in your mind all the time, that would be hard to do. But so what is it that Paul means? Is it like a metaphor? He's saying, oh, well, be persistent and don't give up on it. Or is he? No, actually, it doesn't. The word means pray and don't stop. Keep on going. Always be praying. So how does that work? 
I mean, how, and how do you pray without ceasing? And what he's really trying to get at is, and that's what we talked a little bit about last week, but I want to go a little bit deeper, is make it your way of living. Make it be who you are at the fiber of your being. And it's not about the words, it's about the relationship. Because prayer is the relationship, you know, the communicational relationship between us and God. You know, it's funny that we have so much trouble praying all the time. We have trouble doing things which ought to be much more embarrassing to us. You know, we, we do those things much more easily than we pray with one another. We have a hard time praying with one another. So why is that? Why is it so hard? Partly because we tend to make it into some sort of um, something that is not really. I mean, some sort of uh, expectation of public speaking or uh, theological brilliance or, you know, some, you know, some sort of uh, super spiritual kind of thing. But if I said to you, how often should you love your kids? I mean, so once a day, maybe. <laughs> how often should you love your spouse? How often should you love your parents? How often should you love your friends? I mean, how do you love somebody without ceasing? You just do, don't you? It's just who you are. It's, it's part of your being. You are attentive to them. You know of them. You keep in touch with them. You figure out what's going on with them. I mean, you're interested in them. I mean, there are lots of little things that we do, none of which in and of themselves is loving them but all of which are external acts that help us to, to know that somebody is loving us. But the loving itself is sort of a state of being, isn't it? You know, we even talk about it as being in love. Although, honestly, that has more to do with endorphins than it has to do with, which is a hormone, but than it has to do with any sort of real love. But it, it's a state of care, concern, interest, all those things that we just do. How often should you breathe? We all walk around constantly being, working hard. I've got to breathe, I've got to breathe, I've got to breathe. We don't do that, do we? We just, Sometimes, <laughs> well, yeah. But then something's wrong if that's happening. But, I mean, but it's part of who we are and what we do. I mean, that, that's, and praying is supposed to be like that too because it really has to do with this relationship that we have with God. It's a, a relationship that says that, I believe and I know that my Lord is with me. I know that he is here now. I know that he loves me. I mean, really what we're called to do is go back to what, you know, is said about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that they walked with him and they talked with him. That's what we are called to be in that sort of everyday kind of relationship with God, with just a, a, an expectation that, that he is the king. And that he is the Lord. And, and that's really part of the key of loving him. Is that to love someone, you have to love them not for who you want them to be. Have you ever had anybody love you for who they thought you ought to be? Feels pretty bad, doesn't it? I mean, it's not fun at all. Usually it doesn't work very well. But you have to love him for who he is. And who he is is the Lord God, sovereign creator of the universe. The King of kings and Lord of lords. And to realize that 
for me to say that he's king of king and lord of lords means that he's who's king and lord of lords? Well, he's my king, my lord. Which means that I need to listen. I need to pay attention to what it is that he says. I need to believe that he loves me and has my best interests at heart. I need to constantly be aware of his presence and constantly be um, involved and engaged in those things that he would want me to do. Now, that may sound hard, but it's not any harder, actually, than loving someone without ceasing. You just have to teach yourself to constantly be thinking about it. You just have to become aware that it's a norm of your life. So that when you go to the grocery store and you're shopping, you wonder, what should I get for dinner this week? Talk to the Lord. You know, now we say, well, why would God care what I had for dinner this week? Well, think about this. Who would know more what your body needs for nutrition in the coming week than the Lord? Nobody. So why would we not talk to him? Why would we not make that everyday occurrence of, of constantly being in a conversation with him and letting him be who he is, which is the Lord, a part of our lives? Letting him guide us and show us who it is that he's created us to be. You know, in that, we will ultimately be able to come to what he did create us to be. And so he calls us to develop that mindset of praying without ceasing, of constantly seeking his will, always be on the lookout for who he is and where he is and, and what it is that he's calling us to in every moment. And, and an interesting thing happens because there's, there's something that comes out of doing that. And that is that you rejoice always. Now again, this is another one of those things where Paul says this here, rejoice always Give thanks in all things. You know, and immediately in, in my mind, came, so we're supposed to give thanks when a natural disaster happens. We're supposed to rejoice when a loved one gets, you know, cancer or really sick. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? You know, how do we rejoice? How do we end up being people who can give thanks for these horrible things? And how do we give thanks for suffering? Our own or, or people we care about. And yet, Paul says, rejoice always. He doesn't say, you know, always try to be happy. He says, rejoice always. Give thanks in all things. Now, you might think that he's being a bit Pollyannish here, except if you knew where he was writing from. He was in prison. Isn't that where you would be rejoicing and giving thanks if you were sitting in a prison cell? Particularly a Roman prison cell. I mean... And so he, he knows wherever he speaks. How do you rejoice even in hard times, even in, in, in difficult circumstances? And it really goes back to that idea of praying without ceasing. When you live in that sort of relationship with God, there is one fundamental thing that you know. God does not cause all the hardship that comes. But there is a, a, a finale to it that we know how it ends. He wins. God wins. He always wins. And so it doesn't matter what the world can throw at you. It doesn't matter what evil besets you. It doesn't matter what, you know, problems you may have or how difficult things may, you know, be, you know, the world may be trying to make you think of things. Because 
if you're following God, he wins. In the book of Revelation, which a lot of people don't read, but because they find it frightening. It's actually a wonderful book because there's all this buildup with all these horrible things coming upon everything. And, and then finally, when the final great battle comes, do you know what, what, how long the great battle lasts? It's like the twinkling of an eye. It's done. Jesus wins. They all show up. Jesus wins. It's over. We win. And so if you are having difficulty... If you are sick, if you are, you know, worried about your finances, if you're having trouble in your relationships, if you're doing all of those things, if, if your life seems out of control, one way to rejoice always is to realize that that's actually a good thing because you weren't ever in control. You know, one of my favorite things is I have a lot of times being a priest for so long, I've had people say to me, well, if we let this group use us or do this, will, will we, um, you know, take on any liability? And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, could we be sued? I said, oh, sure. And they go, what do you mean? I said, well, you can be sued for anything. I mean, you don't even have to do anything to be sued. Somebody can make something up and sue you. I mean, it's not hard to be sued. I mean, all somebody has to do is file a suit against you. The question isn't, is there a liability? The question is, is this what the Lord wants? That'd be like Jesus, you know, going in Jerusalem. Well, Lord, if we go in here, is there going to be any liability on us? If we ride this donkey into town? Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, but Jesus knew something fundamental. He knew that God wins. God always wins. And so when you're facing a job loss, you know, financial difficulties, all those kinds of things that, you know, weigh on our hearts and minds that concern us because we aren't in control. Another way of looking at it is say, gee, I must not be the Lord. Maybe I need to let the Lord take it and be in charge of it. And that doesn't necessarily mean be passive, by the way, and say, okay, here, it's yours. Bye. I'm going to go off and do other stuff. To give it to the Lord really means to say, Lord, what do you want? What would you have me do in the midst of this? Show me the way. Guide my path. It's not a, a passive turning over. It's a very active involvement in the turning over. Because if you're going to turn it over to the Lord, you don't treat him like a servant. You trust him to guide you and to tell you what it is that you will do in the midst of it. And, and if you can begin to live through that, then, then the most calamitous things that can come upon you won't be able to knock you down because you will know that God wins. So it may be hard right now, but God's going to win. It's just like on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, didn't look too good. You know, the disciples were kind of like, oh, gee, now what happens? But Sunday came. And the Lord was raised. God wins. That's how you begin to rejoice always, is when you live in this mindset of living in the presence of God and letting him be the Lord of your life, of letting go of the control of everything that you think needs to be happening and saying, Lord, you created this life for me. What do you think needs to be happening? What is it you need for me to do? And then doing those things. But you do have to have a mindset. You know, that's why a lot of times when people get married, for instance, they have a real hard time if they've been single adults for a long time because they don't want to let go of control. 
They're used to controlling their life and their surroundings. And now this human being has invaded it. And they don't do things the same way. And that gets hard. The sad part about it is, is that you, a lot of times in marriages, what two people do is they just butt heads about who's going to be in charge. When the real answer is neither one of you. Let the Lord be in charge. You know, if we could get just one thing through our mind that God is Lord and we are not, life would be so much more fun. And think about it. Who would you rather be around? Someone who's constantly seeing what's wrong with something or somebody who's always upbeat and positive? Which one are you? At work, what would people accuse you of? Would they say, well, oh good, I get to go see them again. <laughs> they'll, they'll be sure to point out to me what's not working. Um, or is it somebody who, even if they are telling you things that aren't working, is always just so positive about it, and you know, we can do this, this is going to be great. You know, and if we aren't rejoicing always, then I can guarantee you're not praying without ceasing. And I can guarantee you, you're trying to muddle your way through the world and life on your own. And there's only one fundamental problem with it, is that you didn't give yourself life. And when, you know, biological death comes, you won't be able to give it back to yourself. You know, if you want to be the Lord of your life, God will say, okay. You know, I was like that when I was a teenager. You know, I didn't want my dad telling me what to do. You know, he was over 30. He wasn't very bright anyway. And he finally said, you're right. So you won't be living here anymore. Um, and I promise you, I will not come to your house and tell you what to do. <laughs> um, and he said, but if you want to live in my house, you've just given me the right to be your Lord. <laughs> he didn't say it that way, but he said, you've given me the right to tell you what to do. He always had this way of putting things that was just really hard to argue with. Except that I knew one fundamental thing at that age, and that's that he was dumb. I mean, the guy only had an eighth grade education, for crying out loud. I was in college. I mean, how smart could he be, right? And um, it was amazing to me how smart my dad got between the age of, my age of 20 and 25. I think he took a lot of time and went out and took some studies online or something before 